Welcome to the Future Humans podcast with Gene Houston and Annalise Smitsman, the co-authors of the Future Humans trilogy. For this episode, we are interviewing Hazel Henderson, a true pioneer and global leader in the world of evolutionary economics and ethical integral investment. This unique interview took place for the writing of Return of the Avatars, the Cosmic Architect Tools of Our Future Becoming, which is the second book of our Future Humans trilogy. Hazel features in this book as a real-life character in the final chapter when the fictional characters Rose and Lee have a series of questions for her about what needs to change in our current economic and financial systems. Hello, friends. My name is Jean Houston, and it is my enormous pleasure to introduce a friend of mine for 40 years or more. <laughs> Goodness, we even, with Barbara Marks Hubbard, uh, Hazel, we wrote a book together, The Power of Yin. Hazel is the founder of Ethical Markets Media and the creator and co-executive producer of its TV series. She is a world-renowned futurist, evolutionary economist, worldwide syndicated columnist, consultant on sustainable development, many award-winning books, publications, and she is famous for finding the blind spot of conventional economists. If I were to say something that really sums her up, I would have to say that Gandhi would be so pleased with her because Hazel, more than anybody I know, is the change that makes the change. Thank you, Hazel, for joining with us. And uh, you speak of the need to apply the, the golden rule and how corporations have become puppets of finance. You've also mentioned how it is evidence that finance is now, as you say, disordering every local social system and every local ecosystem on the planet, and how there is a far greater economy than the market economy, and that this is the love and caring economy. Dear Hazel, can you share with us now how we can actually make this shift from predator economics, as you call it, to the love and caring economy. Thank you, dear Jean. What a delight to be here talking with you. So, uh, yes, the point I've been trying to make for 40 years is that um, the market, the official price system denominated market sector of all societies is new a couple of hundred years old and um, much smaller than its enfolding traditional economy, a system which I call the love economies. And they are the mutual sharing uh, economies, much, much bigger, all of the community volunteering, like my mother used to do, you know, the Meals on Wheels and the Well Baby Clinic and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, the uh, raising children, taking care of elders, um, all of that mutual aid that Kropotkin wrote about so many years ago, and so many others. And basically, we have forgotten 
that that was based on the first set of principles that most human beings kind of subscribe to, and that is the golden rule. And the golden rule, if you go to Wikipedia, there are about 50 pages on the golden rule. And um, it was do as you would be done by a perfect system statement of our total interdependence. And the fact that we humans as a species are one. We have the same DNA. We now find that we all have about 2% of Neanderthal DNA, going back that far. But the golden rule was subscribed to by Confucius, by Mohammed, by Jesus, by the Buddha, um, all of the religious traditions. It's in every language. And uh, we've sort of forgotten that that is the basic um, society, and it was not necessarily conducted in money, although money and markets are very useful tools that human beings have been using for thousands of years. And I remember the wonderful book by Karl Polanyi um, called Ancient and Modern Economies. And he described one example that stuck with me, and that is in the Pacific Islands, all of these different islanders with different sets of values and traditions used to paddle their canoes hundreds of miles between these islands uh, in order to trade and exchange uh, based on their relative uh, appreciation of certain goods and whatever. And the money they used for shells. And another example he gave is um, the Native American people all over this continent of North America uh, traveled around exchanging feathers, stones, uh, whatever had a wampum, whatever had particular value. And so we have to realize that money and markets um, are. Uh, ancient tools, and they didn't get weaponized uh, and modernized until they became linked with the technological fossil-fueled uh, industrial era. And then it became really easy to uh, use this one single metric, the price system and money. Uh, and so they decided, okay, well, all of the statistics that we'll use to measure and guide this global uh, technological change, um, we'll just use money. And, and yet, of course, we know that the price system is a function of human ignorance because it's always historic. Um, so you're always look, backing into the future, looking through the rearview mirror. And uh, the accounting system in economic theory, those economic textbooks I hate, <laughs> uh, basically allows this kind of Freudian slip, externalities. Well, what's an externality, for heaven's sakes? Well, it's whatever I don't want to pay attention to in my business. And if I'm creating impacts that are affecting innocent bystanders or pollution in the uh, environment, I'm just going to externalize them from my balance sheet and move right ahead and claim uh, profits 
that actually when you do a correct full spectrum accounting, you find that, and this was actually a study done at the UN recently, that all of the posted profits of every multinational corporation in the world, if you internalize those external costs that they externalized, none of them made any profit. And so, you know, it's, it's like a gigantic fraud. And it, it got me thinking for many, many years um, about, particularly in this country where all of this stuff really started, um, how the role of advertising and marketing um, evolved out of this market sector and the use of the price system. And I began reading all of these books. I remember reading Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, where he was talking about how psychologists had been recruited into uh, sharpening our powers of persuasion as a way to manipulate human beings and their value systems. And I'm writing an article um, at the moment um, that's just reminding me of all of this, particularly like Kurt Anderson's wonderful book uh, called Fantasyland, How Americans Lost Their Minds. And, um, and then I just turned up another book of two friends, two psychologists, Ian Mitroff and Warren Bennis, both now I think deceased, sent me a book they wrote called The Unreality Industry and how this profitable industry based on manipulating human beings' weaknesses and cult, you know, cognitive biases um, was actually um, destroying our sanity. And of course, now it's all um, uh, amplified by these social media companies like Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of it and Google, we're understanding that um, the, this is now uh, amplified globally and has created the genocide in um, Myanmar of the Rohingya people. Uh, all those people who were shot in the mosque in New Zealand um, and um, the same kind of thing in India. Uh, uh, and there is no accountability. It's all just done for profit. So we're at a stage now where we have reached the inflection point. And we're going to have to steer these wonderful powers of persuasion, which we have, uh, toward the higher values that we know dear Rose aspires to. Thank you, Hazel. That was really essential what you just shared. And indeed, when we bring that back to Rose, the main character of the future human strategy, um, you know, what you were talking about earlier about this manipulation of the algorithms and how people purposefully, for uh, economic reasons, generally for profits, have been preying on human weaknesses and um, really, you know, purposefully designing for manipulation, for the bias for, for people towards false news and uh, division and disunity. And so in the, the Human Strategy, and especially in the second book by your feature, um, Rose and her friend Lee have been calling out these mechanisms 
the puppet masters. And what they've been they're saying is that these little puppet masters, which were trying to control what's happening behind the scenes, and it's just been going on for thousands and thousands of years. You know, the mechanisms change perhaps, but the intention does not. And it's always linked to wanting to dominate, wanting to control, wanting to, to influence what's happening on our planet. And um, so they, but they really aspire to the economy of love and care that you, you are talking about. And they're also wondering, can't there be another way, another role of money? And is it really money's fault? Because quite often we find that people are blaming it all on money rather than looking again at the puppet masters <laughs> that are orchestrating, yeah, or manipulating that role of, of money. So for all of those people like Rose and Lee, who believe in another world um, and are absolutely committed to being that change. What would you say is, is really the most important focus for that persuasion that you just mentioned that we really have to use our powers of persuasion now um, to shift you know, how, how the economy is, is being done on planet earth and what we are allowing. And we have to kind of bring in back a moral compass, an ethical compass that's lacking currently. So what would you say is really the most important focus uh, for catalyzing that shift? Well, I believe that the focus has to be on global finance. And it's very strange. No, it's not very strange. It's very obvious why this happened. The economic textbooks almost say nothing about finance. And they say very, very little about money. They kind of take it as a given. You see, okay, well, it, you know, it's a means of exchange, you know, and a store of value and whatever. Um, see, money is simply information. And it's information that we happen to believe in. And it's really a social protocol just like any other social protocol, a set of rules that we decide, okay, we'll use this as a proxy token of our intentions and what we value. And so every budget that every government puts up, um, and we've got this fight going on right now in the USA, um, is about um, what we value. And so you've got this build back better bill that there's a tremendous fight going on between Democrats. The Republicans don't care. They're, they're happy with the money thing. <laughs> and yet the, the Democrats got sucked into the money thing where all they're talking about, oh, is it 3.5 trillion or is it 1.7 trillion? You see, and they're focusing on the unit on the token, um, rather than the uh, intention behind it and um, what people want uh, the government to invest in. And since we know that governments print money, see, that's the role of governments. It's in the constitution that the, 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 the money is supposed to be coined by the Congress. Um, when it passes a, a law. And so right now they're fighting to pass a law which will provide inexpensive childcare so women can go back to work, um, uh, pre-K, free pre-K education for kids, 
to get them a grounding in education. Um, you know, additional benefits uh, under Medicare for seniors so that they don't have to go to a nursing home. They'd be provided for at home. Um, investments in a new uh, green uh, infrastructure for the future uh, clean economy. And that's what the money that the Congress will create uh, will buy. And so the Congress creates the money um, by signing the bill and then government uh, assurances and contracts are let to the private sector and companies bid for those contracts and they do the job, make, make money uh, doing the job, whether it was in Eisenhower's era, the interstate highways, whether it was John Kennedy in the 60s with the space program, putting a man on the moon, um, whether it was FDR deciding that um, we would have the Hoover Dam to dam the Colorado River and uh, send money to California, uh, without which Los Angeles would still be a village. Uh, and so, see, that's the process. And uh, that's how we reclaim the reality. But uh, we're still kind of um, bemused by shuffling around the tokens rather than what they represent, which is our human intentions. And Hazel, you've, you've mentioned that the problem with the current financial algorithms is that those have been designed for a very limited view of human beings and human nature. We might call it not the possible human, but the inhuman human. Uh, you've said, if done this way, you're gonna keep replicating the seven deadly sins. I love that. Right. And you explain that we have insensitized, we've insensitized our societies, greed, uh, competitiveness, uh, acquisitiveness, envy, and so forth. Now to rem remedy this, can you tell us more about these algorithms that have been programmed to keep replicating the seven deadly sins? Yes, they all come uh, in the financial community and they're all in the algorithms that asset managers use to manage your retirement gene, <laughs> whether you like it or not. <laughs> um, and so these, um, they manage these pension funds that represent trillions and trillions of dollars using algorithms and um, our job um, and we've been doing seminars about this here, you know, by invitation for many, many years. And I jump in because we're a member of a group called the UN um, uh, Principles of Responsible Investing. And they hate me because they represent the managers of all these pension funds and uh, a notional 60 trillion around the world. You know, crazy number. right? And. And so uh, basically, uh, I say to them very politely, well, would you unpack your algorithm and uh, look at the extent to which there may have been assumptions when it was created that might now be obsolete? And they say, oh, no, I can't, I'm not allowed to do that. That's above my pay grade. I just get my bonus from pushing the buttons. And as you know, um, about 60% of all 
investing on all stock exchanges around the world is done uh, with no human intervention at all. They just push the button. And so we got locked into uh, these algorithms, which uh, not only incentivize the seven deadly sins, but are also enormously out of date because um, they don't take in any externalities. Um, they don't uh, look at the cost of big market failures like climate change or the disaster of the US health system, which failed the whole world. I mean, the new uh, World Health Organization um, uh, uh, that's just come out now, the United States, uh, ostensibly the most technologically advanced society in the world, had the very worst number of deaths per capita from the COVID virus. And, and that was intentional in terms of the fact that was all programmed into the algorithms. And, and nobody could figure out how to change it. And so uh, I'm doing an article uh, which will come out um, tomorrow uh, called Fixing the US Healthcare Disaster. And I point out all of this. How could this possibly be um, that we turned in the worst performance in the world um, on deaths per capita from, uh, from COVID? And so I have to go back to the first principles uh, in the uh, old economic textbooks, you know, the, the guru, uh, Adam Smith. And he wrote two books, one book in 1759 called The Theory of Moral uh, Sentiments, uh, which recognized the golden rule. Totally. Uh, and then he wrote uh, in 1776, um, how the, ex, uh, the externalizing of this market model and competitiveness based on technology um, had created a new kind of wealth of nations. And those books should be read and studied together. But of course, the market players and the Wall Street has just grabbed the one they wanted, <laughs> which was... Um, you know, the wealth of nations. And so, okay, let's open up the wealth of nations. Um, and it says uh, very clearly, um, Smith says that here are the conditions under which you can use markets to efficiently allocate your uh, resources and your intentions. And those conditions are that the buyers and sellers must meet each other in marketplaces with equal power and equal information. And they must not inflict any harm on any innocent bystanders. And so I say, okay, let's look at the US health system. This tells you why the US health system can never be a free market. Because the buyers, the patients, no wonder they call us patients, we have, almost, we have almost no power and almost no information. And the uh, sellers, the providers, the practitioners, the insurance companies, they have all the power and all the information. 
And they inflict not only harm on the patients, but also on the general public and society. And we have, you know, all of these, um, you know, uh, deaths through um, application, over-application of drugs and um, surgical interventions and whatever they think is the right thing to do. And almost no public health system, which is focused on wellness and ecological um, cleanliness, clean air and water, and all the things that human beings actually need, and that the planet provides free. So I'm trying um, to clarify a, a lot of this so that, because this is really what's holding up our politics right now in many, many countries, is holding the politics up in Glasgow, COP26, they're all arguing, you see, about, oh, um, we did promise in Paris that we who did the polluting, the, you know, developed tier one countries, um, we'll make good on the fact that all of the impacts of us making profit out of fossil fuels, um, We'll make good to the developing countries and we're going to put a fund together uh, and give them a hundred billion uh, every year so that they can begin to catch up and do the green you know, the version that we never got around to doing. And, um, and so what happened? We backslided. And that, that never materialized. A few bucks materialized. But the fight now going on in, in Glasgow uh, is, um, okay, the uh, countries like and China are saying, okay, you guys, well, you know, uh, India said, um, okay, well, we are not going to do any of these things that you want us to promise until 2070. So, oh, terrible shock, isn't this awful? But on the other hand, India has over a billion people. And those people in India, just like the, the 1.2 billion people in China, they uh, do one fiftieth of the pollution of a single American. So even though we're 330 billion, a million, um, we are, we rich consuming countries um, are still the ones wrecking the planet. And so uh, we need a lot more than a hundred billion every year. And we need to make sure that these countries um, have the freedom to do what they'd really like to do. Like Modi, um, Modi is actually shifting in India to um, solar and wind-based electricity, he says, by 2030. He's going to do it. That's far more important um, than making some promise. You know, he's actually doing it. So what we have to do is to make sure that we, um, we don't fudge on any more promises. You know, and the promises that have been made, and I've been very critical of this. We've done a lot of uh, interventions at uh, COP26 on this. The offsets, they say, okay, um, governments and companies, uh, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050, net uh, zero. And so, hey, what about just zero? What is this net? 
And so you unpack that and the net is they want to go on polluting and then they will compensate by um, promising to save a forest somewhere else. And there aren't enough forests left for them to promise to save. It, it's all a hoax. So you see, we're, we're still dealing um, with all of the falsehoods and uh, unpacking these algorithms. And, uh, you know, in the computer language, we always said garbage in, garbage out. In uh, algorithms, it's bias in, bias out. That's all. Vested interest in, vested interest out have to unpack that and say, what was the intention? And we have a paper uh, on our website. Um, uh, and this is a young friend of ours who is um, an algorithm maker. <laughs> and, uh, Dave Lauer, he's about 30 and very honest young man. And he wrote this lovely article, particularly about Facebook. And it's that ethical, uh, that, that no algorithm, algorithm can be ethical. It's only if its sponsor and creator, the company that creates it, is also ethical. Thank you. <laughs> and I love to add some perspectives because this uh, mentality of externalization that you mentioned, it's really critical. I've been living in a developing country, Mauritius, which is a small island developing state, you know, for many years. And it's really pretty meaningless uh, to have just have a climate change fund uh, if uh, the island is going under, right? Uh, so what does it even mean? Um, uh, and that's not enough to, here we'll be losing 20% of all the coastal lines, uh, you know, in the coming decades where most of the development has been. So there, there's no way you can offset that. Um, the other problem, of course, is by telling um, all these other countries that, um, just consume or produce whatever you want because you weren't the cause of the problem. <laughs> that creates another problem. Here Mauritius too, they've been wanting to do the same economic development trends as many of the Western countries, but it means that now here uh, we are exceeding the carrying capacity of this little island. So it's so important that we are working within the threshold boundaries of each of the bioregions and each of the, you know, even in the, in the local communities and have an understanding of that rather than this, this new form of this rat race of who can still pollute and who can't. It's like, oh, you know, exactly. it, yeah. You know, Jean and Barbara Marks Hubbard and I talked about a lot about this in those conversations we had, which ended up in the book, The Power of the End. And basically we were talking about, uh, Barbara would always say, you know, well, we're a young species, Hazel, you know, we're still in our adolescence, you know, we're grabbing everything and all the goodies and, you know, all of this. And, um, uh, but the point is that now um, the planet is teaching us directly and saying, okay, kids, no more time. Uh, this is graduation time and you're going to have to expand your consciousness now to understand the actual real circumstances of your survival on this third planet from our mother star, the sun, that provides us all those free photons every day and that we have to go back and learn from the plant kingdom, 
which discovered our first technology on this planet, photosynthesis, how they took the photons and in their leaves turned them into carbohydrates, which is the basis of our food supply and all of our wood and everything we need um, for happy lives. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I worked at with the Calvert Group, where I was there for 20 years, you know, trying to develop these screens so that we could measure companies by whether they were good corporate citizens or whether they were polluting and unfair to workers and manufacturing weapons, all these bad things. And that was when I woke up and realized, oh my God, these companies are puppets of finance. Uh, they've got to get stock price up and all of this kind of thing. And um, so that was when I went up the food chain and decided that our task would be to confront um, the financial system directly. And so Calvert and I, in 2000, released at the National Press Club the Calvert Henderson Quality of Life Indicators, which were our answer as an alternative to GDP. This was before Bhutan's gross national happiness or uh, any of the others that came along. And we had 12 aspects of quality of life, um, and mostly based on what humans need um, to be safe, healthy, uh, the environment they need, and what makes humans happy and content and all the rest of it. And so very few of our indicators were conducted in money. You know, we had urban air pollution. We wouldn't, you wouldn't measure that in money. You would use the direct scientific um, metric. How many parts per million of junk is in the air? And same thing, you know, with health. Uh, we used disability adjusted life expectancy and uh, infant mortality rates and stuff like that. See, so uh, the. I was talking to Wayne the other day because we're moving ahead now. You know, we're both China watchers. We've been in China many years, both of us. And um, uh, we decided to, we were on a webinar together uh, about what comes then after measuring companies' performance using money. How, how are we going to go to these real scientific metrics? And so he said, well, look, Hazel, what do you think about President Xi? And he's talking about constraining markets now, these runaway greed, seven deadly sins markets, um, constraining them with just regulations and just cracking down on the, the billionaires and saying to Jack Ma, no, you can't maximize profits. You have to uh, be a socially uh, responsible and you have to not maximize your profits, but you have to give more to workers and all of this kind of stuff, you know. And so I have written an article, which I can link for you if you like, about two weeks ago. Um, I kind of crystallized in my mind, okay, um, let's ask our fellow asset managers and financial friends. And my article is called ESG, you know, which is, you know, Environment, Society and Governance, um, Stakeholder Capitalism and China's Common Prosperity, question mark. 
And what I tried to do is to compare how the two cultures were addressing the same problem of out of control, seven deadly sins, um, kinds of capitalism and markets, you know. And so uh, here was President Xi cracking down on Jack Ma and cracking, telling, no, no, you can't bring your company ant um, in an IPO, forget it. And then he cracked down on the second richest man in China, Mr. Hui, who um, is the head of um, Evergrande, the um, housing giant, um, which is um, having to face uh, a lot of loans that, you know, huge expansion. And so um, the Central Committee said, okay, the new rule is houses are for living in, not for speculating. And so then contrast this, and I found this in Business Week, same time, um, Wall Street high rollers uh, were giving millions and millions of dollars to our crazy governor in Florida, Ron DeSantis, in his run for the presidency on the Trump ticket. Those are the contrasting things where what our culture tried to do was to bribe these guys or just let them get away with it. Whereas the Chinese said, no, we have a thing called regulation. And we're just going to say, no, you can't do this. So our, uh, in this country, everything at the moment is about incentivizing behavior with money. And that game is over. And so we are going to have to sit down with the Chinese because these two societies now are the world's two co-superpowers and that they are going to dominate the rest of this century. And so let's have that conversation about the exact same problem. How do you restrain the seven deadly sins? And how do you go back to incentivizing the golden rule? We can do it, but you have to change the algo. <laughs> Yes, and, and underneath that's what we understand with ownership, because beneath all of this is also the conversation about ownership, you know. Oh, yeah. Think, exactly. Yeah, we can, we can own the land, we can own nature, yeah, before yeah, we can own people. Exactly. So all yes, of that. that's a, definitely, you see, that, that's a subtext of the whole market model. Yes, ownership and property. And of course, uh, at the beginning of the United States, human beings were considered property that could be owned. And we haven't really owned up to that yet. No. You know, and I'm just writing very quickly an article that will go out tomorrow um, called uh, Education as Investment. And I'm saying the good news out of Virginia today with the win of the Republican, education now is on top of the agenda. And I've been saying for years and years um, that this is the basis of democracies. And going back to our founders, um, I mean, Jefferson said the same thing. He warned us, he said, you know, if you're going to have a constitution, 
um, toward um, universal suffrage and uh, all of that, you had better inform the consent of the electorate. And you see, as I'm pointing out in this article, we still have 20 million uh, functional adult illiterates in the US. They vote, but they can't read the newspapers. So you see, we have under uh, invested in education for 200 years. And that's much more important than these little surface trivial things about masks and, you know, whatever. Um, it, it's really the fact uh, that the incentive system um, designates in GDP, and I wrote this in about 20, 20 years ago, um, G uh, education, instead of being treated as the fundamental investment that every society makes in its future, in its children, to turn them into responsible citizens, um, is designated not as an investment, but as consumption, like an ice cream cone. And so they have to compete. The, the, the school budgets and the teachers' salaries and everything else has to compete in every budget at every level of government has to compete with all of the other priorities, um, you know, um, uh, whether it's cigarettes or, um, you know, um, the price of food or whatever else, um, instead of segregating it out as the most fundamental investment that any society makes. So you see, the incentive is encoded again, the misincentive is encoded in the metric. So we may actually have a decent conversation that would bring up all the things that are wrong with education, you know, where the funding of education depended on your zip code. And mm -hmm. so whether your school was well endowed in a rich neighborhood or whether it was a broken down school, you know, in a poor neighborhood uh, and all that kind of thing. And then, then, then the fact now that all of these school shootings have created such havoc that, that children have to go out on the street and demand their right to life, liberty in the pursuit of happiness. They're afraid to go to school, have to be drilled, you know. Uh, and so we could raise the real issues in education. Let's have a, you know, a real national debate about it. Hazel, you have so many deep perspectives on just the field of the disaster. <laughs> so surely we are in that kind of time. I sometimes speak about how it was very interesting that when you go through history, you find that the great times of awareness, of opening up again, are often like renaissances, are preceded by pandemics. A total breakdown at every level of society. We see it in the 14th century, and then, of course, emerges the 15th century with these unique perspectives, not simply in terms of science and art, which were quite remarkable, but also in sensibility about who we really are and what we yet can be. Uh, and I see you as a person who has had such an enormous understanding of the 
the dregs and the dangers that is that are destroying societies everywhere. It's no longer a particular society, it's worldwide. And we've never really had a worldwide compass before. So naturally the question to you, having seen, discerned and addressed these enormous issues of failure or wrongness, do you ever have an idea of what the Renaissance society for the coming out of this time might look like, feel like, act like, and how we would can put it in place? Well, um, I just uh, did this chapter for Irvin Laszlo's book, you know, The Dawn, I can't remember the actual full title of, of a new um, era or something like that. And I, I used the, the typical futurist methodology of creating a scenario of the, the, uh, the possible, the possibilities. And so it's called looking back, lessons looking back from 2050. Mm -hmm. And looking at the fact that enough of us did mature and expand our awareness of our true condition of survival and make the changes in our cultures and our habits and our metrics, the whole system changes, um, which seem um, so enormous. And, and yet, um, I think that they are changing because um, basically stress has always been the biological tool uh, for evolution, for all species. If, if you're not stressed in some way, the species doesn't evolve. And so we humans, uh, through um, all of our self-inflicted global wounds, um, are now um, being kicked in the pants every day. And so uh, I think change has accelerated. I'm, I'm just using a, a rather primitive anecdote of my own situation where for 40 years, I've always been considered sort of a crank. Um, although I have, you know, this sort of secret following <laughs> people and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, uh, but uh, basically uh, suddenly in the last year, I am overwhelmed. Um, doing these webinars and, you know, Zooms and all of, I mean, like I did one um, in Hungary last week um, where there is a candidate now challenging Viktor Orban. And they wanted me to, to talk about, you know, what this whole future scenario, how all of this could happen. And um, it is the awakening. You suddenly get to a point where enough people wake up and this, you know, and whether it's now Greta Thunberg addressing the UN with millions of children um, or whatever. And then next week, um, I'm doing the same thing with a group in Warsaw. Uh, and you see, it's just kind of coming in from everywhere. And so this is just something that um, it's the acceleration of all of our hum human communications. And it's, it's what you might call um, the good side of the internet and the possibilities that we always had, you know, that Marshall McLuhan said this would be the global village, you know, and of course this was what um, 
Google was supposed to be, you know, don't be evil and all of this kind of stuff, um, which was a very kind of typical Silicon Valley adolescent approach, you know, by adolescent young men, actually, who run the run these companies. And suddenly um, we're having to grow up very, very quickly. And it can happen. I, I was on the board of World Watch Institute, started by Lester Brown in 1975. And I, I was absolutely immersed for 30 years in all the horror stories. You know, I knew all of the melting ice caps and everything, you know, and the burping methane in Siberian forests and all of the things that, you know, we know are now happening. And back in those days, he was called Dr. Doom. And you weren't allowed to talk about any of these things in polite company. And we used to get together, you know, after hours and kick things around. We would say, well, what do you think the chances are that, that humanity um, is going to make it or are we going to join the sixth extinction? And we always thought, well, it's kind of 50-50. Well, I think now um, things have gone down to about 20% chance that we can make it. But let's go for that 20% work as hard as we can. That's perfect segue for our, our final question to you. For women like Rose, and of course young men as well, but especially also for the woman, and you yourself having had to take that role so often of challenging, uh, being an advocate, uh, but stirring up the system and you know, getting people to wake up to what's happening. And that role I see uh, is going to be needed uh, even more so yeah, in this coming phase. So. For women uh, like Rose, what would be your message of encouragement um, from everything that you've learned as well? <laughs> uh, I would say, uh, don't be deterred from your own center and your own truth mm. uh, and your own experience. See, I never went to college. I learned everything, you know, on the great university of the streets. <laughs> and community organizing, you know. Um, and so uh, learn to decode your own experience and um, learn to evaluate everything that you're told. And uh, I was lucky enough to grow up with two very strict atheists. And this is a very intellectually invigorating way to grow up. And I often tell this story, and I'm sure that Jean's heard it before, <laughs> that I came back from nursery school one day in a little nursery school around the corner that I would walk to, you know, in those days, and that was the way we did it in England. And I said to my mother, I remember going into the kitchen and saying to my mother, oh, we learned about the little Lord Jesus today. And my mother said, what rubbish. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I was like, oh my god well i didn't i go to school to learn <laughs> you know and uh, the same thing i used to always watch my father you know um who would sit in front of the tv and mac millen was the president was the the uh prime minister of england at that time trying to shed the commonwealth because you know we couldn't handle it anymore and um my father sitting there at the tv bloody fool you know just and <laughs> okay so who can i believe <laughs> so you learn that you have a very precious thing in here 
and you have to protect it very carefully. And what I learned from all of that was that when anyone was giving me their opinion about something, uh, the question I would always ask them, well, what, what makes you think that? And get into that, get into that discussion. So, it, so if Rose sticks to her truth and her experience um, and protects her brain from all comers, <laughs> then Rose will be just fine. You sound a great deal like Rose. <laughs> Rose grown up. <laughs> I want her to be you. <laughs> a, a fermentation of the possible. Oh. Yeah. Well, you Are know, you what I really loved, as I said in that review I did of your first volume, um, yes. is your five new archetypes. Yes. I love, I love them all, you know, see myself and all of those five archetypes. And they're wonderful. You are, yes. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I hope that Rose uh, considers those five archetypes, you know, because they're, they're just wonderful. They are. We're actually applying them also in organizational development. So I'm actually working with organizations where they are now embedded to become the growth archetypes for an organization. People can even apply for the roles, as several organizations I work with, where you can apply for a role to be a homeless coder or a future creative or an evolutionary catalyst, a pattern wave, et cetera. <laughs> so it, it works in real life. Really <laughs> yeah, terrific. Was there any uh, final words you would like to say? Well, uh, I have to say as well, um, even though um, it's still um, something that we have to share very carefully with our dear brothers, um, that this is the age of female awareness and female yeah. experience. Because um, our experience um, for all those thousands of years uh, has been biologically different um, from the experience of our brothers. and. Um, we had to, because we were nurturing children, um, we had to cooperate, um, we had to share, um, and, and uh, basically we had to have these nurturing skills or, or you know, we wouldn't be around today. And so uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I liked um, Rian Eisler's new book about nurturing our humanity. Um, because uh, she and her co-author um, have come to, there's hundreds of footnotes um, about um, the fact that this is a shift um, really away from the patriarchal domination, ego kind of uh, model toward what she calls partnership and uh, I, th I think it's better to call it partnership because that's really what it is. We're not trying to create a matriarchy or anything like that. But, uh, or the Chinese will say, you know, that women hold up half the sky. Um, we really have to claim uh, our place now in the most loving way that we can. And the brothers are very scared. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Trump won and Hillary lost. There were so many middle-aged men voting that could not 
countenance the idea of a woman being president. They couldn't articulate it. Um, they dressed it up in all kinds of other ways. But she would have been president uh, if it hadn't been for those centuries of patriarchal right. paradigms of dominance, you know, an ego and uh, display and, you know, uh, you know. You know, Hazel, I really believe that you and especially the women who have been inspired by you are the parents and the prophets and the pioneers and even the patrons of another society that is trying to emerge, that is birthing now. And no old formulas or stopgap solutions <laughs> of the old patriarchy will serve. So I want to yeah, honor I'm... you for all that you have really planted, nurtured, created, and watered, and continue to water and to feed the new soil of a new society. Thank and you so much. Who has been my greatest loving mentor? You, Jean. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> You've always been there for me. You know, all the numbers of times I would call you and say, oh my God, Jean, what do I do now? <laughs> you were always there for me. Well, we have always been in a relationship of co-creation, which is perhaps the best one that there is. You helped me so much. And you, me, my friend. <laughs> and, and so this is lovely. I'm so happy. I'm just so happy to be in this little threesome. Yeah, same. And I love seeing the friendship and the partnership between the two of you because I believe that that is the greatest value, you know. Money cannot buy that. <laughs> no, no, money can't buy that. Absolutely. <laughs> so sending you all the love. Uh, that I have and uh, looking forward to whatever the next stage is. <laughs> Thank so, you so much for all your wisdom and all your hard work and insights. Lots of love to Lots you Lots of both. love. <laughs> bye bye.